Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. Episode 26. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Well, hello, hello. I'm Sarah McKenzie, and this is episode 26 of the Read Aloud Revival. Thanks so much for tuning in with me today. One of the questions we get a lot is what's the difference between the Read Aloud Revival podcast and the membership site? And you know, I don't think I've actually articulated that for you very well here on the podcast. The podcast is always free. It comes out every other Tuesday, and they're free interviews that I'm doing with authors and leaders in the Read Aloud movement. They offer tips and conversation around what it takes to build your family culture around books. I love the podcast. The podcast will always remain free and you can find it, of course, in iTunes or at readaloudrevival.com. The membership site is more of the guts. (laughs) It's where we get deep into forming a family culture around books in each of our homes. There's a lot of how-to inside the membership site. For every single episode of the podcast, we've created cheat sheets which are basically action plans plus time-stamped cheater guides to the podcast so that you can hop around the podcast to get the most important or most encouraging information from each one. And then you can take action on those episodes and instead of just letting them wash over you, really let them make a difference in your life. The heart and soul of the membership site is found in the member workshops. And these are how-to workshops. They're video workshops. Pretty soon, we're going to be adding a feature where if you don't want to sit and watch the video, you can just download the audio instead and listen to them on the go, which may work well for some of you who are super busy and would much rather just listen rather than watch. But the member workshops aren't just extensions of the podcast. They're more nitty gritty, how to. So for example, Adam Andrews has a member workshop inside the site right now called How to Build a Perfect Reading List. What you find is his video workshop along with downloadable worksheets that help you, you guessed it, build a perfect reading list for your family. We're working on one right now called How to Read a Classic with Your Teen. Janice Campbell is going to be walking us through that one. There will be a video workshop, of course, and worksheets that will guide you step-by-step through what it looks like to read a classic with your teen. We also have a member workshop on how to start a parent-child book club and how to shape your child's moral imagination through the reading of fairy tales and several other workshops coming up soon, including one from Julie Bogart on how to start a poetry tea time in your home. And I'll be doing one soon too on the secret to great discussions with your kids. So the biggest difference between a member workshop and a podcast is that there isn't a video element to them if you'd like. And also there are downloadable worksheets. And the main emphasis on the workshops is to help you actually take action and make things go in your home. 
instead of thinking about how lovely it would be to start a poetry tea time or instead of sort of hemming and hawing over book lists and not sure how to build one for your own family, we help you just actually do it. That's the whole point of the member workshops. One of the key parts of the membership site are the live events. So these can't really be replicated outside of the membership because you have to be there live to really get in on all the goodness. Boy, I tell you what, we had our very first live author event in the Read Aloud Revival membership site, and it was fantastic. It was so much fun to watch all the kids type their questions in. Caroline Star Rose, the author of Blue Words and Maybe, was live on screen answering kids' questions. And the people who joined us for that event said it was just a fantastic experience for their whole family. One of the things that kind of came as a surprise to me was how much inspiration Caroline offered for young aspiring writers. There were quite a few of them in the audience and they were typing questions into the chat box and her inspiration and encouragement for young writers was just really astounding. Both of my oldest daughters were found scratching away in their spiral notebooks, (laughs) writing their own stories that night. And my husband said, oh, those kids must have been pretty inspired. So that was pretty cool. She gave a lot of really good book recommendations and gave us a peek into what it was like to write Bluebirds, which was just really fantastic. Anyway, if you are a member or if you'd like to become a member of the Read Aloud Reviver membership community, you can get in to see the replay, the video replay of that event. We'll also very soon, probably by the time this podcast airs, we should have the complete transcript loaded up there in the site for you as well if you'd rather read it instead of watching. And if you really just like to listen to things on the go, there's actually an audio download there too. So you can snag that, listen to it on your iPod or your phone or whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. And you'll get in on the Caroline Star Rose awesome action (laughs) that we had going on there. So that was really fun. To get in on all of that, just head to readaloudrevival.com and click on the button that says become a member. It's only five bucks a month. There's no contracts or fees or any required length of time you need to be a member. And of course, there's a 100% all the time, no questions asked satisfaction guarantee. So there's really no risk to give it a try. And I would love to help you step up the read aloud action in your home. I think the membership site is probably going to help you do that. So today's guest is Zach Franson. He's the illustrator of The Green Ember by S.D. Smith. And I was really excited to talk to Zach to find out a little bit about what goes on in the mind of an illustrator as he's preparing to illustrate a wonderful book like The Green Ember. Zach lives in Greenville, South Carolina with his wife and his adorable toddler daughter. And he illustrates textbooks by day and then freelances by night. He's also currently working on The Black Star of Kingston, which is the prequel to The Green Ember that I have the good fortune of reading right now. And you all will be able to get your hands on this summer. Very exciting. I started our conversation by asking him if he's always been an illustrator. I asked him if he was one of those kids who was always scribbling around, you know, drawing little sketches while he was supposed to be doing his math assignment in school. And this is what he said. Well, I was that kid, but a lot of people are that kid because nobody wants to take a math test. (laughs) But I, for sure, I was that kid. And I recall my sort of earliest memory. I remember doing a drawing. I must have been like four years old. I did a drawing of a helicopter that my mom put on the refrigerator. And I remember thinking, that looks like 
a helicopter. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt sort of, I felt very proud about that. And that's I, kind of um, how I feel now when I draw something that's like, that actually looks like what I was trying to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So, and then I remember in K5, this was, I, we had to, and this is a literally illustration. We had to write and illustrate a story. And I don't think I understood the concept of a story, but I recall the girls in my class were writing about like my little pony and they would sort of, the teacher would ask us to read our stories to the class and they just kind of went on and on. And mine was one (laughs) sentence and she asked me to read my story and there was something just behind her eyes. Like I could tell she was amused by it. And so she (laughs) says that, can you read your story? And I looked down at my paper and I read my one sentence, which was my dad can lift a truck. (laughs) That's an awesome and, sentence, actually. And I, and I had a picture of this sort of lumpy torso man lifting a, a truck in the, in the air. And it was very naively drawn, but she was very proud of my drawing. She liked it. And I think at the time, I thought that a story was merely something that is not true, but would be cool if it, you know, if it was yeah, true. Yeah, okay, okay. And so I didn't, the concept of narrative didn't really, hadn't really occurred to me. But, and I spent most of the effort on the illustration. So that was my experience there. And I had very supportive parents and who looked for opportunities to kind of nurture those gifts and connect me with people. And and then um, the strange thing is I'm in college. I studied a thing called interpretive speech, okay. which is it's like oral interpretation. It's like theater. Okay. okay. So, so, and I minored in art. And so anyway, all that to say, long story short, after college, I worked up in Pennsylvania for a couple of years and down in Alabama doing some theater stuff. And then I realized that all my friends were getting work experience and I was just getting older and it wasn't something that I want to continue really to do. It was a lot of travel. And so I started painting murals and then I started with some friends at a place called Portland Studios and I worked there for a little while and then did freelance illustration. So it just kind of was a roundabout way and then eventually kind of settled on illustration. Okay. And so you have illustrated The Green Number, which of course, the community here at the Read a Letter Revival, we're pretty much raving fans <laughs> of The Green Number. Oh, well, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, tell me about that. How did that come about? How did, were you and Sam friends before or how did that we all? Yeah, we were. And I'll have to say, I was so relieved that I like the book. Like I, I, I had sort of committed <laughs> to illustrating it before I read it. And I read it sort of in early stages, but I remember one night kind of like opening up my iPad and he had sent me the file and I just thought, okay, well, here, here it goes. And yeah. the two habits and the thing. And I really found it. I found it just, it felt more and more sure-footed as it proceeded. And I really, really liked it. So, so yeah, so Sam and I knew each other. Oh, I remember um, we, he did like a story magazine in West Virginia. Okay. And he asked me to do an illustration for it. And we sort of were talking and it was something with <laughs> Something with a dragon and a puppy dog. <laughs> okay. And anyway, we just sort of, Sam's just one of those very gregarious kind of people. And he knows a lot of folks and he's sort of, he's a very hospitable guy. He and yeah. Gina both. And oh, so, he's so likable. I mean, there's yeah, just nothing yeah. not to like about Sam. So yeah, so he just kind of, we just kind of connected. And then we talked through story worn stuff and we talked about, you know, Green Ember. And yeah, so it just kind of organically went from there. So let's talk about, you know, what the role of illustrations is as far as okay, um, yeah. a child's reading life, because I have noticed for my, especially for all of my kids, but especially for my 11 year old daughter, she's always been really sensitive to illustrations. So if there are bad illustrations or ugly illustrations right. in a book, she doesn't even want to look at it. She'll sit on the other side of the room looking at something else so that she can paint the pictures <laughs> in her own mind. 
And so okay, that's pretty yeah. powerful, right? So I, right. I'm curious what your take is on the role illustrations have in sort of fleshing out the story. Illustrations are a collaborative element of the story. And it depends on what illustrations aren't one thing. So, I mean, sometimes like in a Richard Scarry book, the illustrations are there just to provide a non-textual non-analytical element. So you have like a a bar of soap and there's a word called soap and it's a way that sometimes kids sort of learn things and their, their educational uses. But when you're, if you're just talking about narrative, I think that the primary use, so here are a couple uses, maybe one use that's just sort of generic and simple, but maybe not small perhaps is that illustration helps to make the book valuable as an object. If you have a book that is, for some reason, people don't want sheaf just a sheaf of paper that's stapled together and it has like great expectations on the top. Like (laughs) people want things that are, you know, they're bound and sometimes they're leather bound and sometimes they're an artifact than a, okay. Yeah. They want an artifact. And I, I think that's sort of that it makes it a more human thing to have sort of different disciplines woven together for one end. And I do think that anytime you invite a collaborator into the process of your experience with a story, you risk, you know, shattering your vision. There's a writer, Mark Helperin, who he said something, he was talking about not liking to read his own work because an actor, I mean, this is an audiobook does the same thing in, okay. a, in a way because the actor makes choices about the interpretation of the characters right. and about the interpretation of the lines. And he said that he preferred, this author, Mark Helperin said he preferred, I'm going to mess up the quote, but it was something like, there's an infinite number of interpretations. He likes the ambiguity I think he said something like he likes the ambiguity of language that exists like water poured on water in the in the magic of silence. Like, in other words, that the ambiguities of language coexist in a way that is it's undefined and therefore there can be no sort of wrong solutions. But once you make a choice about the interpretation of a line, mm-hmm. if you're doing an audiobook or if you're you know doing a cover or something. You're defining out of existence all the other things that it's not interpreted in the other ways. So it's probably like screenwriters would feel when actors interpret their... Right, right. Okay. And, or speechwriters, right? right? I'm right. sure mm-hmm. that there are speechwriters who sort of cringe when their lovely speech is, is spoken <laughs> by somebody who's not doing it uh, justice. So anyway, all that to say, so an illustration, an illustration in a book is a collaborative sort of thing with this, the author, with the writer. And let me give you one example. I was listening to somebody who was giving a a talk about picture books. And she was saying that she wrote a poem. I think it was like a poem about like a grandfather and like a kid. And she just assumed it would be like a white haired man. And, you know, how the grandkid was, you know, they were playing in leaves and doing things. And a lot of publishers, the, the author is considered too close to the story. And so they don't have input in the illustrations unless they are making a lot of money for the publisher, in which case they sometimes <laughs> they are direct. But <laughs> In many cases, that sort of recognizes a separate discipline. So this illustrator took the manuscript and made the grandfather a bear and the grandson a bear. Uh And the author said that it was so much better. This is a best case scenario. It was so much better because this was adding something more universal to the story. And it wasn't when you do sort of bears having a grandfather grandson relationship that are in sort of clothes and things. You don't have to worry about sort of ethnicity and the socioeconomic status, and it's not right. limiting, and that's it's a more universal application. Right. And yeah. So she was very pleased with that outcome, although many illustrators are displeased with the outcome of when the illustrators sort of insert themselves. There's a metaphor by C.S. Lewis, and I think is in his book. It's in a book of essays that I read, and he's talking about the romance of things. Okay. And he was saying that so he was comparing kind of sunlight and moonlight. 
Okay. So there's this idea that sunlight is sort of like propositions, right? Like you don't go out in the moonlight to see something more clearly. Okay. But you might go out in the moonlight to see something in a different way. There's a writer, Jim Perrin, he said that moonlight gives otherness to landscape. So there's a romance of the created order that arises when seen through moonlight in a way that it doesn't quite perhaps seen through the full sort of blast of sunlight. Right. Okay. But you can see things perhaps more clearly in sunlight. In some ways, I think text acts as sunlight. And perhaps if they're doing a good job, if it works right, when it works right in a book, that you provide some of the romance, maybe some of the moonlight, which is just, it's indirect thing. Well, so that's I th- really beautiful. That's a really beautiful analogy to think of it when you're looking at a picture book. See, the text is the sunlight and the illustrations is the moonlight. And when they kind of work together, it sort of weaves this beautiful wholeness to the story that you couldn't have one without the other. Right. Yeah. And hopefully they're sort of woven together. They're woven. And so that together they form something more impressive than just piles of string. I mean, like when you look at a tapestry, like if you were to set a, you could probably find the elements of a tapestry for less than, you know, millions of dollars. Like if you look at an old tapestry. Yeah. And it's not so much that the elements are expensive. It's that they're woven together in a way that creates value beyond their material elements. And so when things are, I think, like an opera or anything like that, that's sort of when you have a cultural weaving of different disciplines to that in one story, then I think there can be the potential for greater value than the sum of the elements. What about, well, I don't know how many people actually subscribe to this, but I have heard it before where some will say, read a story to a child without illustrations so that they can create the illustrations in their head. In your opinion, do illustrations or pictures ever hinder a child's ability to imagine the text on her own, or do they aid Right, the right. Of course they do. I mean, I have to... Th- a cover does, for instance. Like, any information where somebody is making decisions about, you know, the sort of the look and feel and tone of a book is doing some of the work for, you know, that the reader would do. And I've had the experience, similar to your daughter, where I've been enjoying a book, and I'll turn the page, and there'll be an illustration... <laughs> And, you know, the guy has a mustache and this person with this thing. And I just, you know, it feels like it's an, it interferes. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it does, but I do also think that there's something legitimate about entering in with other actors, you know, other participants in a story where it's not purely an internal thing, although that's, you know, sometimes helpful. And it's the same way with an audio book, right? They are taking some of the work off your hands when they are interpreting lines. The question is, you know, whether or not it's a good fit or not. So yeah, and on one level, it does interfere with their ability to imagine. On another level, it can provide perhaps if the illustrations are well-placed and well-done, then it can maybe provide a springboard for the child to imagine more things. It can also add to their visual vocabulary of the world uh, so that they can sort of think more articulately about the world itself. And sometimes it can even clear up things that are more difficult to stay in text. So, so when you were illustrating... Heather and Pickett from The Green Ember, what kind of, what factors do you take into consideration when you're reading a book and you're thinking about beginning to illustrate it? What happens in your mind? (laughs) I just can't even, I can't quite wrap my mind around what I would, what that process even looks like inside your head. (laughs) I don't know if you do either. (laughs) Right. We all have, I mean, we all have an experience of what the things look like when we read a book. Mm -hmm. And so the illustrator just has to sort of like start drawing from someplace. But I think intentionally what needed to happen for Pickett and Heather, in my mind, was that they needed to look like rabbits. They couldn't look like people with rabbit heads. Do you know? Okay. Like, yeah. Just sort of, yeah. Like, so I think there are old illustrators like A.B. Frost and Harry Roundtree and T.S. Sullivan and stuff who are, who are good at doing personified animals and still making them look like animals. 
and not just making them look like, you know, sort of Bugs Bunny or something or like you know, a, yeah. a person with big feet and gloves and like a, a big old head. So so I think that that was one of the, the things that sort of drove maybe some of the illustrations in the Green Number. And, and it's difficult when you have a creature with a pear-shaped body like rabbits do because their hips are fairly wide compared to their chest, which is really small. And because I mean, yeah. it's kind of not a threatening silhouette. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's your favorite thing to illustrate? You know, when you get a project, right. I know you illustrate textbooks and you illustrate history, right. a lot of historical based stuff, right? What's your favorite? Like when you get a project, what are you the most excited? Like, oh, I can't wait to illustrate this. So... Well, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it should be a hard question to answer, but it's a hard question to answer because so the easiest stuff for me to illustrate is probably stuff for adults. Okay. Um, so either editorial illustration or I mean, it's just a, it's the most natural sort of feeling thing. Or I'm doing some. I was doing some illustrations for an American literature book where they had a bunch of selections and they had like sort of Edgar Allan Poe stories and you know some different selections from you know, I don't know, James Fermore Cooper and others. And, and I find that you can be a little bit more, you can use illustration as a counterpoint more if you're illustrating for adults than you can if you're illustrating for kids. So for instance, this style is so much more of an important thing in literature for adults, whereas plot is a lot more important in literature for younger kids. Okay. Okay. And so because the text is so stylized, you can't really, that's not something that they're wanting you to interfere with typically it's not so adding tone and sort of thing like you want to sort of you don't want to violate it but you're not really there to bring sort of tone or atmosphere or anything like that you're there to bring something meditative frequently so for example if there's a fight i don't know that <laughs> i keep saying there's a fight scene i don't know why i keep talking about fight scenes but i don't illustrate that many things with fight scenes but well the green number is full of them so <laughs> well that's true. okay so for a kid's book if there's a fight scene you might have sort of like the two people facing off Right. Okay. Or you might have like, you know, sort of somebody who's threatening and somebody who's sort of like, you know, screwing their courage to the sticking spot so that they mm -hmm. can sort of fight. And that's the moment before the sort of fight happens. Mm -hmm. But in a book for adults, it might happen that you would instead illustrate maybe like a glass falling off a table during oh. the fight or oh, something. Okay. Or you would see some really sort of specific detail that is more meditative. And it's kind of, they do this in film. So if you think about illustration, maybe as like a soundtrack to a movie. Okay. That, so sometimes you'll have like a chase scene and you'll have sort of up-tempo music or that sort of, you know, accompanies the chase scene. And it's sort of doing, it's just adding more of what exists. And then sometimes you'll have a, like a, a fight scene or a chase scene and you'll have really meditative, slow music. Mm. And it's a completely different emotional experience. Mm, yeah, right. right. But it's more contemplative and it sort of spirals in more. And you can do that sort of thing with illustration for adults. And the demands are, it's easier illustrating for adults, frankly. So um, ah, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, but I don't know if that's my favorite. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so, it's just I mean, not I think, as intense. And also it sort of depends. Like you just sort of, there are certain times, like I have an appetite right now to illustrate something with cowboys. I don't know why that is. <laughs> okay. And also I wish there were 1 million Indiana Jones type stories. <laughs> which there aren't like it's a strange like that kind of adventure genre mm -hmm. isn't very you know it's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that so like things with artifacts and like weird temples in ruin and like that kind of thing like i have a craving for that too right now 
We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer And here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? (laughs) Fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. What future projects do you have underway or what are you working on right now? Right now, today, I'm supposed to finish some interiors for a book that's coming out, I think, at Christmas time called, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure book, but it's during the first century with like a shepherd and a, a girl who's a potter and then like a, a boy who's a Parthian. And so they have that stuff. So anyway, so I'm doing nine interiors and I have to do a cover, I think, well, ASAP. So I hope to get it done maybe by Monday. I just can't imagine drawing, like creating art that quick. I can't imagine creating art anyway, the way you create art, but that quickly is amazing to me. Okay. (laughs) Aw, shucks. Thanks. (laughs) So that's that. And then I'm working on a thing for Bible Visuals International, and it's a story about John Newton. So they have a thing like like in Sunday schools and stuff or vacation Bible schools where you have like a story and you like flip the pages and you've got like illustrations. I'm working on something for them. And that's due at the end of the month. And then Black Star, which is the prequel Mm -hmm. to The Green Ember. So I hope to have the cover done by the end of next week. And then it's just sort of a way to, I've just got to juggle it with that other job. (laughs) (laughs) Try try to get that done. But hopefully, so there's so many practical things about like the printer and getting it on time. And, you know, and sometimes it's like the cattle, they need the image for the catalog or they like, so a lot of that. So those are the three on my plate right now. This is sort of interesting that I talked to an editor from HarperCollins a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. she was basically, so I was talking about picture books and I said, you know, I, I remember in the 90s that there were picture books that were, there was a lot of atmosphere in them, right? And so it wasn't about the picture plane. It was about the world behind the illustration. Huh. And those illustrations have seemed to have disappeared largely. And anymore, it's sort of like the picture books are these kind of flat, it's like circle and triangle are yeah yeah you know like that Uh and so i said what's going on there so the ones seem to strive for timelessness right Right. and these are very timely and in many ways they're verbally driven books and they're witty to a certain degree but they're just not they're not either imaginative or they're not they don't sort of strive for sort of a timelessness or universality like a richness or something is lost i think Mm -hmm. i think so yeah atmosphere i don't know how else to yeah yeah and so she said to me that it was the result of 
moms. <laughs> what do you mean by so that? <laughs> this is what she said. She said that I know this is a provocative statement on this podcast. So I don't, but... <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to unpack that one. <laughs> <laughs> so she, well, this is what she said. Basically, that librarians used to drive tastes and appetites for publishers. Okay. And the sort of minimization of librarians as Barnes and Noble and other sort of you know people have uh-huh. individually sort of taken care of buying their books and they're not bought by somebody at a library. Uh huh has created, so it's made like celebrity publishing a thing. Oh um, yeah, right. So, right. I mean, like Katie Couric, no librarians are really going to be interested in her writing books or Tyra Banks right. <laughs> writing a book called Model Land, right? Right. Which is a real book apparently. And I, really? I mean, she, she's, a, she's a very successful woman and I'm sure this, who cares what I have to say about her book? I haven't read it, but the reviews are not flattering. But the thing is like, that has sort of been driven by moms who like Katie Couric and, you know, Madonna and hmm. whoever, Tyra Banks and whoever. And so that sort of drives a lot of the publishing stuff. And also that it's flattened the tastes of books for kids into makes kids laugh or makes mom cry. <laughs> oh, now that's a very good point. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Because I see a lot of comments just generally about kids' books. Oh, well, gosh, the one that really comes to mind is. I love you forever. Is that what it's called? Okay. By oh Robert yes, Lund. yeah. And it's I like the kid with the toilet of, on the cover. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of <laughs> honestly, if you kind of just look at it separate from the fact that it does make every mother cry. <laughs> it is. An it's emotional really book. about sure. the mother. Yeah. It's really not. When I look at it, I think this is not a book for children because there's nothing. As a child, I can't right. imagine thinking there's anything here for a child. It's completely about mom, but it is one of the books that I think so many of us have in our home. And why is that? It's because it's for us, not for our children. I think that's interesting. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, and so I don't know what that means. I don't know. I think that more and more mothers are sort of, are thinking through intentionally, sort of thinking through their libraries Mm -hmm. and they're thinking through what books are good for kids and that sort of thing. It's more a problem with the publishers in some ways than with the moms per se. What I ask basically, why is there no sort of, why aren't people wanting kind of old. So there are two issues. You can start to collect books that are old books that have good sort of virtues in them and mm-hmm. have good lessons in them. But it starts to feel like these virtues are sort of like a fly trapped in amber, right? That mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. of the, the time in which the book is written and they don't sort of, we don't see them in the wild anymore. Right. And I think that, I mean, this is sort of what I think that Sam's doing is good is because these are sort of old fashioned in some ways books that are written and are, you know, they're new. They're sort of so that they're, but publishers don't have an appetite for that because the view is that there's not a market for those types of books because if parents want books of that type, they'll just get the classics, which are cheap to reprint for publishers who have the rights to them. Right. And so it's not worth investing to produce new old books, if you will. Right. Well, that makes sense. And it also makes sense. I mean, I think in our in the Read Aloud Revival community, we're always, you know, in our Facebook group or just on the membership site or just on show notes, we're always talking about trying to find these books that really, well, the way they describe The Green Ember is an, a new story with an old soul, I think. Is right, that right? Right, Yeah, yeah. And I think, that's, I think that's what we're looking for. We're looking for, you know, we all are trying to share which classics have had the most impact on us and you know, which ones have the best illustrations and how to get your hands on those. But as far as newer fiction that has the same kind of transcending power to really move your spirit and embody that whole truth, goodness, and beauty, it's really hard to find new books that are newly published. And I think when I see what a lot of the kids are reading, well, when I go to the library, quite frankly, I think 80% of what I see on the shelf is 
character based or marketing, you know, it's based on some kind of a movie or character oh, right. or, yeah. or it just seems like it's lost that richness that you're talking about that the older books have. And I've often wondered, so why? I know this is easier to sell, but why is that? Because we're all well, looking for right. something that's not there. Well, I think that so their conception of the market is that kids are narcissists, right? And okay, they need yeah. to see themselves. And they also need to, they have this notion that there's a war between sort of kids and adults and kids need to sort of be pitted against the adult world. So you have all these sort of transgressive kids who are narcissists yeah. that occupy the page. And it's worse for girls than for boys because yeah. boys are largely neglected because they're not the big market. Girls view reading as a social experience. So they share books a lot more and boys tend to read in isolation. It's not that a bunch of boys are sort of reading the same books together That's right. as much yeah. as girls who sort of, they kind of tend to read the same books. Mm-hmm. And so the worst thing is that there are a lot of just horrible narcissistic priorities in girls' literature. And in boys, it's sort of, they're, you know, they're kind of an afterthought. So they'll have adventures and that kind of thing, but it's not as pervasively shallow as the girl books. But I mean, yeah. And I think it's just sort of, there's a value system that exists in most of the publishing houses that is, you know, it's antithetical to what Christian parents would want. And so the idea is, and so a lot of parents think, oh, to get kids to read, you need to to sort of have something that kind of worships them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and makes them think that they're amazing. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's just not, I mean, in my experience, that's just not the case. I used to do, like I said, I was in, um, when I, in college, I studied oral interp, which was basically the interpretation of literature. So you do like a recital, like a one person show and that kind of thing. That was like the way that stuff went. And I took a storytelling class. This is one of the reasons I like your, what your podcast and your site so much is because I, I took a, a storytelling class with this teacher who just persuaded us that reading to your kids is like the best thing and people mm. like to be read aloud. And we all just bought it. Right. Like Mm -hmm. we didn't have to be persuaded. Like she persuaded us, I guess. But like after that, we just thought this is like a fact. If somebody suggests that they don't like audiobooks or they don't like being read to, they're lying to you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is sort of our operating thesis, right? We thought this was like the case. So anyway, so I did summer camps the summer after this class and I had uh, sport campers and like they're like basketball campers in junior high and high school. And that summer I would come in it was on a college campus. And so I would come into sort of the room and I would say, if so-and-so is not in bed in the next 10 seconds, you guys don't get a story. (laughs) And they would, (laughs) they would scoff and laugh. Like that was kind of ridiculous. Uh Right. And I would wait like a minute and they would hustle (laughs) and I would come back and they would all sort of, they'd be in bed looking at me like askance. Right. And so I had this whole collection of like, I read like, you know, radio plays and like, like the hitchhiker, I think was one and the sort of that old Orson Welles play and like Mm -hmm. dragnet radio plays. And I read selections from literature and short stories, like about sort of people in the depression. And, and the thing is by the end of the week, I would go into the room and I would say, if so-and-so is not in bed in the next 10 seconds, you guys don't get a story. And they would scream at that guy to get in bed. <laughs> I bet they would. <laughs> and, That's and so the, funny. Yeah. And what's interesting is that those aren't, they were sort of that kind of middle grade young adult range. Mm-hmm. And those weren't stories that sort of worshipped youth. Mm-hmm. Those weren't stories that made them need to feel like they are sort of a transgressive kid that, you know, that they're vicariously living through a transgressive kid who thinks his parents are idiots. Like they were stories about the broader world. It was a spiraling out situation, not a spiraling in. (laughs) 
my oldest daughter just read Understood Betsy by Dorothy Canfield. Okay, Fisher. yeah. I have yet to meet a child, and I'm sure there are them out there, but I have yet to meet one who has read that book and doesn't love it. If I could think of a story that has properly ordered relationships between adults and children and sort of this right. mutual respect, but there's not this, it's not authoritative to the point of where, you know, the grownups are in charge and the children will succumb kind of thing. And it also isn't that thing we see now in modern TV shows and books where right, the kids right. completely scorn adulthood. It's just this really rightly ordered book and it is completely compelling. My daughter kept running into me and we, I've read it to her before, but it's been like five years since I've read it to okay. her. So she's reading it on her own and she kept running into me and reading me passages and just, she finished it and said, mom, that book was so wonderful. So what, now if she were to describe the appeal, how would she describe it? Would she describe it in the same way that she likes that, that you know, relationships are well-ordered or would she describe it in a different way, even if that was sort of behind it all? You know... I haven't asked her exactly, so I'm not really sure. Mm. And she's 13, but I think, I don't think she would use those words. I think she might talk about the way she related to the, how she felt so much like Betsy. My gut feeling is that maybe just deep down, there's that whole right ordering of the universe happening in the story right. that makes her feel right. good. Before we go, and I've taken up way more of your time than I said I was going to, <laughs> but before we go, I have a question I love to ask everybody, which is, if you were stranded on a desert island uh, and you could only, you were hoping I wouldn't ask, weren't you? <laughs> well, you know, I listen to Sam's podcast yeah. and I, and probably if you had just asked me mm -hmm. and I hadn't listened to that, I would having time to think about it has left me with no ability to answer that question. <laughs> it's exactly what we were talking about before with the, you know, your limitless possibilities are right. like, yeah. So I don't know, maybe T.S. Eliot poems, Okay. maybe like collected just because like when he talks about light, light, the visible reminder of invisible light mm -hmm. and he sort of goes down and talks about glow light on a grass blade so that invisible light is a metaphysical aspect of the light of the world. So, you know, so this is a, a way to describe talking about God. And that the light that we see around us is merely a picture of that light. And so even so much as the, the light of a glowworm on a grass blade, that strikes me as sanity. More than a book of essays. And I think sanity would be a big struggle for me island by myself <laughs> for a year. Yeah. So, okay. I'm so embarrassed that I'm making such little progress on this question. So maybe, okay. So let's just say that's one of the books. Maybe the Chronicles of Narnia, if there's like a one volume yeah, deal. Okay. Maybe just the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. There's this idea of Terry Udy that C.S. Lewis had in a letter with his friend, and he was talking about the alignment of terror and beauty, and that in the scripture, angels say to people, fear not, whereas Victorian angels look like they're saying they're there, right? He says this in like the screw tape letters. And so when we read Isaiah and we read about glory of the Lord causing both fear, but also causing the capacity to enjoy more of the glory of the Lord so that we change from glory to glory, that there's this idea that in The Voyage of the Dawn Trader, where the characters are sort of, the light is too bright for them, and they're drinking the water, which is like drinkable light, and it allows them to look upon the sun more fully. And I feel like that is a valuable thought, not just as a more valuable as you experience it through the process of literature than it might be if it's just purely articulated, although it might be more clear if it's articulated directly, that God is gracious to provide us sort of transitional lights, that he hides Moses in a rock as he passes by as a means to preserve the life of Moses. But also at the end of that, Moses shines, you know, he has a veil over his face because he shines. That sort of reminder that beauty isn't the saccharine thing. And I think that if it's a pretty island, then there's got to be a sense to where I just, there's a, a Welsh, well, he's not Welsh, but he like, he's 
adopted Welsh culture. Uh, Jim Perrin, he writes about mountains and things. And he had a, a, just a thing. He talked about landscape. It's the objectification of our emotions frequently. When we look at a landscape and feel at home there, mm-hmm. that it's because there's something in us that it represents, which I don't know if I buy that completely. He then goes on to say that we need to not cling to the joy. We need to just experience it. And if you've ever been in a place where there are like a lot of mountains, there's this, there's almost this sort of frantic need to kind of soak it in. Yeah, right. right. That can diminish the experience. I feel um, that way with my photography. I'll, I'll think I have to capture this, like almost a frantic. Uh, <laughs> and I actually even saying that about mountains and saying that about my babies is the same thing. I have to capture it because I'm trying to cling to it, like hold fast to it. It's a, I'm, you know, terrified of it. Right. So I think just something in the voice of the doctor that helped me to experience the joy of creation and sort of natural revelation. And that would be heartening and good for my sanctification and my sanity. Sarah, I am so (laughs) sorry. So that's two. (laughs) That's two. T.S. Eliot and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Oh, yeah. Now, this is terrible. This isn't a book I've read or anything, but I'm just thinking like, is the function of this question just to sort of say, what are your three favorite books? <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Because I'm totally <laughs> missing that. Like I'm actually sort of, I mean, like the works of Herodotus or something might be helpful, like to just sort of experience a book thoroughly that you wouldn't otherwise, Okay. you know, in this sort of day to day. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or, or like War and Peace or something. But in terms of three favorite books, those are completely different, but I've already taken like a half an hour to answer your question. So Well, let's tell our listeners where they can find you online. So A to Zach, A-T-O-Z-A-C-H.com. Kind of like A to Z, but A to Zach. And I am on Instagram. Zach Franzen Illustration has a Facebook page, Twitter as well. Okay. Zach Franzen on Twitter. Perfect. So I'll make sure those are all linked up in the show notes too. So okay. people can just click yeah. right around and find you. And then we'll also link to the post you put up on Amongst Lovely Things called Hospitality and the Holy Imagination. That has got to be probably the best post I've ever had on my site. So it's just, uh-huh. man, and the reaction from readers sort just sort of confirmed my gut thought that this is amazing. So I want to make sure we link to that. So if you're listening to this and haven't read it yet, head over there because Zach talks about the role that Christians have in being hospitable with their art. And it is probably a way of thinking about art that you haven't done yet. Certainly changed my perspective on what it means to create beautiful art. So thank you so much for writing that. Oh, well, thanks for posting it. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real treat. I knew it would be. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. Hi, my name is Israel Irby, and I'm eight years old. I live in Sarajevo, Bosnia. I have lots of favorite books. One of my favorite series is the Indian in the Cupboard series. One of my favorite parts in the series was when Omri, the main character, entered in another world, in the Indian's world. Hi, my name is Nadia, and I'm from the state of Georgia. I am seven years old, and my favorite read-aloud book so far has been Tub Tub and Nubbing, which my mom read to me when I was four years old. It's about two mice which have adventures, and my favorite one of these has been when the robber mice come and they pretend to be a circus, and then they steal from other people. If you want to find about, out more about these 
adventures side out the book from your library. My name is Jeremy and I live in the state of Georgia. I am five years old. My favorite read aloud book is The Mitchell Five for Victory. It's about a family who acquires animals even though before the war started, the dad said they should they can't make the house into a zoo. I highly recommend this book. My name is Adele and my age is six and I live in Maryland. My favorite book is Miss Hickory and Miss Hickory is a doll who has who has a twig body and also twig feet, like shoes, and she has a acorn head and her like nose is carved and her skirt is a leaf skirt and her shirt is a light fabric. I am Charlie. I'm five. I live in Virginia. And what's your favorite book to read aloud? Treasure Island. And what do you want to tell us about Treasure Island? They blamed us from his battle and they fired the pirates. The pirates lost it and they shot hands on house and they came by the house and out the door. They find he comes back in and zero. And then they after it, then they find good guys find the treasure and they land on his finger and they set sail for England in there. They stop in Spanish America and they get silver escapes. Silver escapes with a little bit of gold and then they sail back to England. Thank you, thank you, kids. As always, that's my very favorite part of the podcast. Well, that's it for today's episode. Don't forget to head to readaloudrevival.com and click the Join the Revival button to make sure that you get my Friday updates. I send out my very favorite book recommendations, resources, and tips and encouragement each Friday. So make sure you're on the list to get those. And you'll also get a heads up whenever we have a new live author event or something else pretty awesome coming up on the podcast or in the membership site. That's readaloudrevival.com. That's it for now. And until next time, go build your family culture around books. Mm -hmm.